every entrepreneur needs a book. And today's guest will help you write one for yourself. Are you a leader trying to get more from your business and life? Me too. So join me as I document the conversations, stories, and advice to help you achieve what matters in your life. Welcome to Unbound with me, Chris Dubois. Mike Ulmer is the founder of Catapult Book Writing. He specializes in helping business people write books that demonstrate their expertise and help grow their companies. Mike's also a published author with over 20 books to his name, and we're going to learn more about how we can make that happen for ourselves. Mike, welcome to Unbound. Chris, thank you so much for having me. It's been great just a couple of moments we've had before the show, just a yak. So I'm thrilled to be here. Yeah, uh, we're going to get plenty of yakking in the episode, but let's start with, uh, with your origin story. Oh, well, so my origin story starts with, uh, with uh, what is in Canada considered a major crime. It may not be considered a, a major crime in the U.S., and that's forgery. Because when I was 18 years old, so I'll kind of go back. Uh, parents, uh, very rocky, unpleasant uh, house to grow up in, kind of fearful, a little bit of stuff there. And, of course, that's not unique at all. And um, so really a kid that really didn't have much direction and wasn't really thriving at all. And uh, one day I got a letter from Lambton College in Sarnia and said, congratulations, you've been accepted in the journalism program from Lambton College. This was 1978. And even in 1978, you had to apply, you know, and I hadn't. So I went to my mom and said, uh, what's this? And she said, uh, well, actually, you know, I, I applied for you. I said, you signed my name and you sent me a, you sent us into the school? And she said, yeah. So I said, okay, I went. And of course I went and I met my wife there, but as I like to call her, my current wife. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, I went and I failed. I failed spectacularly, Chris. I had no skin in the game. And then I went out west and I, was gonna, I went to the oil industry and pretty well put that entire sector into recession. I was the worst oil exploration guy ever. And at one point... Uh, there was going to be an explosion, a long line full of sandbags in a metal basket. You probably know a bit about this. It's coming down. And, of course, these things are generally set off, as you probably know, by static electricity. And uh, this long line being suspended by a helicopter down over the tree line to me to fill in these holes that we were going to blow up. Uh, I got there to find there was going to hit dynamite that had leaked through the casing. And that was probably going to be the end of it. And, uh, and probably the end of the guy up, up, up in the chopper too. So I grabbed it and I swung around and I, he didn't know I was there. And I knew that I was, I could very well be dead and I got it settled down. And then just before I started unloading it, I looked up and there was a long line that extended pretty well to the tree line. And there's a big 50 pound cast iron hook there, Chris, and it came loose. And so I sort of stepped back and it hit me in the Middle finger, the little finger knocked off the fingernail and ricocheted off my steel-toed boot. And that thing, I swear to God, was still shaking on in the ground. And I said to myself, "Self, we're going to make some changes here. <laughs> God did not put me on this earth to be screwing around with helicopters and dynamite. So, <laughs> so I went home, and this time I passed. And I worked all my way through. Uh, and then I started working in newspapers and other newspapers, and I wanted to have a great job. I wanted to cover big league sports uh, in Toronto, where I'm sort of not from, but where I worked. And uh, and I got to do that. I got to be a sports columnist at the number one sports paper in Toronto. So that's my origin story. And it uh, it gets after that as Herb as uh, Les Nesman said. After that, it gets a little weird. 
Right. So what actually drove you to uh, starting Catapult book writing and kind of chasing this approach? Yeah, what I found was that, so I'll just resume the story. So what happened to me is that I got to the top of the mountain and then I just blew it all up because what I didn't know is I had bipolar disorder. So people with bipolar disorder, they're often, you know, fairly articulate people and with a kind of have a knack for, for writing. And I certainly fit into that category. But uh, so, uh, but I didn't know that the worst thing for someone with bipolar disease, illness rather, condition, is to be have that kind of a life where you travel between, you're not getting enough sleep, it's it's your one hotel or another hotel, you're traveling a lot, your life is really really in flux. That's not good for people like me. And so I was in, I had all the talent for the job, but not the disposition. And so I got arrested. I know you look at this guy and say, you got arrested? Yes, I got arrested because I was involved in a confrontation with a guy that I work with, no less. And uh, and so my employer quite rightly said, buddy, we're not going to send you anywhere. We don't know what the hell you're going to do. And, and they were absolutely right in doing that. And so I stayed there for several more years, but I never regained that ability to go to all these events because I went to the Super Bowl and I went to the Olympics and I went to the World Series and I went to the Stanley Cup Finals several times. I'm not sure about the World Series. Anyway, uh, and then I went to work for the, the company that owns the Maple Leafs and Raptors. And I worked seven years there and really liked it. And then the guy that hired me moved on. And so eventually they always get to you, especially since I had the same salary I had in the newspaper, which is pretty good. And then I said, so what am I going to be now? I'm, I'm sort of the accidental entrepreneur. And I went to a, what's called a Business Networking International meeting. I don't know if you've ever been to one of those, Chris. And I met, I had no idea there was this cohort of people in their business, like living off their wits, right? No job, no, no pension, no nothing, just doing it their way. And I was so impressed by that. But and I met all these small business or medium-sized business people. And, and I came to instantly admire them. Uh, for those reasons. And, but when I talked to them, nobody had a story. No one knew what their story was. And, and so I thought, wow, how can that be? So I was looking for a way to help those people find that story. And so books were kind of the natural thing. So I'm coming up on my eighth book, I think, uh, in terms of our company, Catapult. Yes, yeah, seven. Yeah, seven. But um, what I really like to do with people is sit down and help them find that story that really important story because it's never what they think it is. And it's, and that process is so great, uh, both for the, 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 the subject that the person I'm dealing with and for me to be able to help someone connect the dots and have them go, Oh, you know, I didn't see that. Or I never recognized that. That's your story. It's really, really rewarding and really, really fun. Yeah. So I guess, are you creating multiple because like the the story that they're going to use really depends on what they're trying to do with their life right or career or whatever like they're crafting that story for a purpose and so do you find most people have like that one story that they're kind of using for everything because like i know in my life i probably have like five or six different stories depending on what a area of my life i'm talking about that would actually dictate like show how i'm living leading Doing all these things. That's such an interesting question because when people ask me, what's the difference between me and StoryBrand? And for one thing, scale. They're a fantastic endeavor. I'm one guy living in Canada. So start with that. But I believe that your story uh, isn't your story based on your industry. 
you're doing what you're doing now, Chris, for a reason. And so that story can't be, I don't think you should write your story for um, your audience. I know that sounds really counterintuitive and people don't think that, but your, your life story is your life story. It's sooner or later, it's going to lead into what you're doing. The important thing is, is that what you do need to do is give a lot of advice. So the three elements of a great story are first off a proposition, something really great, something that is a little counterintuitive, that almost kind of sounds like your manifesto. Like, so say a four hour, four hour work week, great idea. Who wouldn't want, what a great proposition. You can get everything done in four hours or any book, Quit, which is out now, which is a great book. So let me ask you this question, Chris. If you're a mountaineer, what's your goal? Get to the top of the mountain. No, oh, and, and back down safely, I would say. Thank but, you. <laughs> and that's <laughs> having climbed multiple mountains. And actually, I have a great story I'll tell you sometime about getting medevaced off the top of a mountain after break, falling off a cliff and breaking both my ankles and oh, getting man. some pretty severe frostbite. But that's a separate, <laughs> separate story. Nothing, nothing interesting about you at all, Chris. <laughs> so, yeah, so anything is sometimes quitting is the right idea. And we all have this thing where you persevere and you, well, she's a professional poker player, right? Who would know more than a professional poker player about quitting, about when to throw in your hand? So she has this great proposition. Sometimes quitting is really the right thing. Most of the time, often it's the right thing. She has this great backstory in that, you know, she was a professional poker player, right? So, of course, she knows about quitting. And then she gives lots and lots and lots of advice about when you should quit or what you context and contextualizing the issue. So, if you have your proposition, you should quit more often than you think you should. If you have your backstory, she was a professional poker player and that made her a lot of money. And quitting made her probably as much money as the hands that she Probably made more money getting out than she got getting in. And the third element is really, really important is that advice. Tons and tons and tons of advice. That's your book, Chris. That's the thing. You, you need those three elements. And that's and when you have that, then your story is going to resonate whatever your business is. You're not tempering it for, um, for your audience because you're doing what you're doing right now because you want to help the people that are going to read your story. Not the other way around, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it does. I mean, if you, I should know my story better than anyone. And if there's advice that I can pull from my life to help someone else, like it's now just putting it in front of them. And if it's what you need to be hearing right now, awesome. Like, why would we not? Uh, and that's so that, right? powerful because really, I, that's, 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 I would think that's the second most important thing. The first is those three things that the proposition, the backstory, and the advice. The second thing is everyone's got a story. Right. You can go to Facebook. There, we've never had more stories, you know, which is great. Your story is nothing but a conveyance for your for your um, for your proposition. But your story really is the way home for your conclusions. You know, stories are great. Conclusions are better. People don't listen to our stories for any other reason than to get something they can use, than to find a conclusion. We're not in the story business, Chris. We're in the conclusion business. Yeah, I like that. Uh, I'm actually writing that down right now. Oh, neat. So, so yeah, something, I guess 
we kind of shift directions a bit and I'm, I'm we have a, a whole list of questions that yeah. I like I prepped and I haven't touched any of them yet because we're just going. Day. I got all day. Uh, so <laughs> one of the, how do you make the proposition proposition of the book so clear to to anyone who's like just coming across it, right? Stumbling across it, whether it's like on Amazon or just through word of mouth. How do you make that so clear that people know this is for me? Because one of the things that a lot of the people I work with, yeah, uh, I call this shelf sabotage, where they know what they need to be working on, yes, but then they just grab random books, yes, and they start reading these, hoping that it's going to solve their problems, rather than going to find the specific book that's actually going to move the needle for them. Oh, that's really yeah, so that's, like, that's so. A great how can book. you? Well, it's yeah. because, because it, it speaks directly to their need most of all. So let me give you an example. So the proposition is either built on a piece of information that maybe only you know or or a a piece of information that's really vital to the person that's going to be reading your book. And remember, the book exists. One percent of the people that think more of you for writing a book will have read the book. The fact that you have a book is just as important. The three benefits of having a book are, A, people don't have to read and think more of you. B, you can write a great book. And see, you achieve a clarity about your path and your life that you didn't have before. My, one of my slogans is, if you wrote the book that you thought you were going to write, you wrote the wrong book, man. Because it's the investing in looking at your backstory and the investing in understanding your industry and taking all the experiences you might have accrued just yesterday for the best and most current possible message. And that clarity that you, you come up with I always tell people, look, I'm going to charge you 20 grand to write the book with you. I'll uh, to get find clarity for you. I'll throw the book in for free. <laughs> because the, maybe the clarity is worth more than anything else. So that's super, super important. But let me give you an example of knowing one thing that nobody else knows. And while wow, that proposition is great, and this happens all the time, right? So um, 5,000 weeks, the time management books, time management for mortals. A guy figured out that we live 5,000 weeks. Not a great leap of faith. But he said that he started working backwards. Okay, if you're going to live 5,000 weeks, what do you want to do? What's the most important thing you do? That's really smart. He took something that was just a fact that you may or may not really have known and extrapolated it and made it powerful and resonant and important for people. So let's say there's a fact that you know that other people in your industry don't know. And I'll give you an example. Let's say you are in the business of um, you're in the U.S. and you are in estate planning. And, and I've had conversations with people in estate planning, and they will tell you that people hate paying inheritance tax more than anything, right? And so they will do goofy, goofy stuff, pardon me, to avoid paying the inheritance tax. They'll, they'll give property to one person uh, with the sort of a tacit understanding that they'll give it to somebody else, the tax man won't, won't find it. They'll choose the wrong people to administer their wills. They'll reward the most ineffectual, lazy person in their circle because that person has the least income. So they'll give their that material, their their wealth to them. And the result, of course, is utter devastation of families. Because as they said in Moneyball, it's not the money, it's what the money says. Right? And when you, I don't know if you privy to this, but when the money hits the table in the state, things get weird, right? And and so it's really, really powerful. So the damage done by people uh, trying to dodge this tax is really, really substantial, really substantial. And so let's say that you were 
a guy that did estate planning. And you have this great background. You always were interested in helping people. You were a Boy Scout. You were very, very entrepreneurial. Perhaps you served in the military, you know, so you felt a sense of duty towards the people you're trying to help. So that's who you are. You have a great backstory. And maybe um, you're at a situation where you've seen people come in time and time and time and time again, Chris, with these harebrained schemes that you can't talk them out of. And the thing goes here in Canada, goes to probate. And it's just a shit storm, right? And, and, um, and it's terrible, but you can't talk people out. So you go, to, you go to the funerals and you go, okay, that person is going to be fighting with that person over the money. So you sit there, and this is a way to sort of distract yourself, because otherwise you're collecting all these little things from dead people, those little cards. You know, I sometimes pull those things out. And so, and so, and, and so you reach this conclusion. And so you investigate it. And you find out the IRS actually keeps tabs on how many, how many deaths, 100 deaths, result in inheritance tax. They keep track of it. So let me ask you this. Just take a guess. What out of a hundred, how many estates result in an inheritance tax? Two. Nice. Nice. You're by far yeah. the closest. 0. 0.05. Oh, man. All right. You're really close. Not close enough. <laughs> really close. So if you wrote a book and the proposition was stop destroying your family for a tax that you're never going to pay. That's a pretty strong proposition. Right. And so often the proposition is something really, really powerful like that, that you've figured out. Often the proposition is your backstory, some element of your backstory. The thing that we don't recognize, Chris, is that everyone's backstory. We think what is normal to us is normal to everyone. My dad, who was a nut, but a great guy, uh, he we had this little dog, this little white dog and his name was spunky just a just a vile little dog <laughs> my dad when it came time to walk him he'd put him in the car put him in the old datsun he'd drive out of town we grew up in sarnia so you know dirt roads weren't more than 10 minutes away he'd take the dog out of the out of the car he'd put the dog on the gravel and then he'd slowly drive away <laughs> that was his version of walking the dog and of course the poor dog you know was galloping and his little hearts booming through you know and but this is my dad. I didn't know anything different. And I sometimes, and I this is a bit of an exaggeration, but not that much. When I would see people when I was young walking their dogs, like people do, I would say those poor people can't afford a car. <laughs> that sucks because what is normal to you is not normal to everybody else. So finding that thing, which is so important. Uh, I'll give you an example, if I may. I talked to a guy. He was a, he's in business. And when he was young, he never could understand why his parents, they had good jobs, but it never felt economically, financially secure. He saw other kids with parents doing the same thing, and they seemed to have more stuff. So he began to um, became very entrepreneurial. He would, when there was construction going around his neighborhood, he'd, he'd buy 12 cans of, of Coke chill it all up and bring it and sell it to the guys. He was had paper routes, multiple paper routes. He was one of those guys. He was an entrepreneur because based on the fact that he never liked that feeling. And so he went into later on after he, he took a accounting and, and school and he went into uh, wealth management because he never wanted anybody else to have that feeling. Right. That's really germane. 
that backstory is really germane. So if you have even a reasonable proposition and that killer backstory and lots and lots of advice, you're going to be okay. So let's get into the actual process of, uh, of book writing. Yeah. I guess uh, what a lot of people have tried. I am sure almost every entrepreneur at some point has said to themselves, I need to write a book. Yeah. Right. There's obviously procrastination and all these hesitancies, oh, like yeah, these other yeah. things that are competing. And we don't like what are some of these? professional writers will do anything. We, we can weigh 600 pounds. I had another once that said, never trust a skinny writer because it means, it means you're not doing the work. If you're doing the work, you're shoving food in your mouth. So, so yeah. So what's the, sorry, procrastination is a big one. Uh, yeah, so I guess what would you say is like the biggest mistake uh, that first time business authors are, are making stuff that's stopping them from actually achieving what they actually mean to with their books. I think 50% there's two things. I was, I would divide down the middle. The first thing is people aren't in touch with their story, right? Because as I said, they don't know what's powerful. They don't really know where to start. I think that's really, really paralyzing to people. So that's my job. I sit with you and it could take hours, but I sit with you. We're going to figure it out. We're going to figure what the backstory is, what their proposition is, and we're going to figure it out. So that's that's really important. So I, I was doing a story, a book with a guy, and he, he was writing about servant leadership. And servant leadership is fantastic. You understand. I, you would be a person that leads their life based on servant leadership. I really believe that yeah. about you. Sure I actually believe, I, I hate the title servant leadership because I think it should just be called leadership. Which <laughs> So, but yeah. <laughs> so my guy is, is into servant leadership and he and he believes really strongly in it. And we're talking and... And we don't quite know what where we're going to take this because servant leadership is 50 years old and it's not sexy, right? So if you're ready to book about servant leadership, you're not going to sell one, right? So we're talking and we're talking about millennials and, and, and I'm you know, asking about them. And you know, he says, millennials are right. They believe what we believe, but they'll walk. They want a transparent uh, system of advancement. They want tons and tons and tons of feedback. They want to know that their own that the person they're working with gives a damn about them. They don't want any sexism or racism in the workplace, none of this stuff. And if they don't get it, they'll walk. And that's right, he said. And then I said, Well, Mark, you're you're a 50-year-old millennial. In that instant, that was the hook. The 50-year-old millennial. That's the name of the book, the 50-year-old millennial. It was never supposed to be a book about millennials. It was about servant leadership. But we found that the elements of servant leadership are particularly well suited for dealing with millennials, but they work for anybody. So that became the book. And the guy did really, really well with it, the 50-year-old millennial. So that part's really super important about how you figure that out. And generally, you almost have to have help because it's really hard to sort of figure that out, right, by yourself. So that's the first thing. Uh, people don't know where to start. The second thing and I, I got all sorts of time for people that don't know where to start. I get it. The second thing I have no patience for, and it's this. Someone has told you that your story is not worth telling, that your life isn't that interesting, that you have nothing to offer another human being. I find that to be an obscenity. I don't blame the person for believing it because we all believe stuff that we were told generally when we were kids, and we all carry our parents' stuff around. But that's not true. And the fact that people believe it, they feel their voice isn't resonant, that they don't matter, pisses me off. And because someone has lied to them, 
And it's going to be really hard for me to convince you that your voice is worthy, that your story is powerful. And it shouldn't be that way. And so I'm angry on behalf of all the people who falsely believed because of what they were told by people they respected that they didn't have anything to offer. I think that's an obsession with me. I just, I just hate that. And so those are the two things. Um, they, people don't believe that their, their story is powerful and resonant and, and they have something to offer. And the other thing is they don't know where to start. Right. I think those are probably tied pretty well together too. Like if they knew where to like, they don't feel like they have a great story because they didn't know where to start with that story. Right? They're starting at the places that are top of mind for them that they're like, no one's interested in this. But it, that next step that if you had just talked about this a little more and got here, now we're now we're in a place that it actually resonates with people. Well, it's so, so, I was talking about a guy about a real estate, a commercial real estate book. They said, what do people need to know? He said, well, they need to know it's complicated. I said, how many things are there you can do to complete screw up a real estate deal? Like off the top of your head, how many things could you name? So I could name 10 ways to completely screw up your real estate portfolio. That's a pretty good book. 10 ways to screw up your real estate portfolio because it comes out in such an interesting way, right? So, uh, so yeah, it's, that's, it's that conversation. It's that real conversation. And yeah, and that, and that's your manifesto. That's, that's, the, that's the hill you die on. And, and that is that different thing that really grabs people. And most importantly, it offers them utility. You know, who wouldn't want a four-hour work week? Who wouldn't want to be reminded that life is finite and we should do, our, do the best we can? Who wouldn't want to learn how to win friends and influence people, right? Who wouldn't want to do that? So these are great propositions and, and fantastic books. Yeah. My only concern with the, uh, the 50-year-old millennial is that in 20 years, that's just the standard millennial. I know. <laughs> but for now, awesome. Son of, uh, he wants to write another one, son of 50-year-old millennial, like son of Frankenstein, but yeah, the book's been great for him. Yeah. So how do you, if we have to get to these stories, right? You're, you're helping people figure out where they should start and stuff. A lot of that comes down yeah. to figuring out kind of being vulnerable with themselves and figuring out what stories they actually want to share, but being willing to share these parts of them because oh. those are the things that are actually going to resonate with people. Oh, so how do you kind of coax that out of them? You nailed it, Chris. That's so insightful, if you don't mind me saying. Vulnerability is uh, reciprocal. If you make yourself vulnerable to the person, then the person will make yourself vulnerable. So I told you a story about my bipolar illness and the fact that I wrecked my career. It's hard not to share when someone tells you something like that. So that's a great. It's, it's, I don't even want to say it's a tip because it's, I would never want to see it described as a technique because that means it's, 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 it's false and it's shallow. Yeah. Disingenuine. Yeah. I think so. Right. Very disingenuous. Yeah. But if you're willing to be vulnerable with your subject, then your subject is going to be willing because it's the law of reciprocity. We don't like feeling that we owe people something. And so if that person is, is that way, then we'll be the same way with them because we want to get on. The, we always want to be on the same turf as them. So that's super important, and that Chris is really, really telling because that's the difference between a, a great book and a good book. And I'll give you an example. I did a book with this guy named Ron Foxcroft. Great guy. You know those whistles you blow them? They're super, super loud. He invented those. Great guy. He's got a business called Fluke Transport Trucking. His slogan is, "If it's on time, it's a fluke." Like there's no. no 
no shortage of great stories with this guy. And we're talking, the book is almost done. And I said, I notice you don't drink. And he said, no, I've never had a drink in my life. And I said, there's only two reasons why people have never had a drink, right? They either have um, uh, a mother who is an alcoholic or a father who was an alcoholic. Which one was it with you? And he said, it was my dad. And he beat me up every week for about seven years when I was a kid. It, and he did so because he was unhappy with his life because my dad was one of those guys who was a woulda, shoulda, coulda guy. And he said, you know, he could have been so much more um, successful in his life had he wanted to be, but he was always willing to take the easy way out, the woulda, the shoulda, the coulda. And that festered an anger in him that he took out on me and the rest of his family. And so I decided right early in the game that I was never going to drink and I was never going to say woulda, shoulda, coulda. All that came out of one question about why he doesn't drink. And so the book became immensely more powerful because who doesn't have or know someone who has that story, right? And so by willing, by him being willing to be vulnerable, and that's really important because he wouldn't have put that in his book, right? He just wouldn't have. I wouldn't have either, right? Only when someone asks you after they've established trust, will you tell them the truth? But that's such a powerful part of the story because now you really know what makes this guy tick. He's still 75 years old. He's still working 60 hours a week. He's still showing his dad that he's not going to be like him, right? That's really powerful. And, and so that's, that's, and you nail it when you said vulnerability. That's the powerful part of vulnerability. And that's why it makes your book so much better by being vulnerable. I guess my last question before we get into our, our final three here All right. is uh, what, are, what are some of the trends that you're starting to see in, as we move into the future of book publishing, right? It's, it's almost more, one, people are using AI yeah, no uh, doubt to try creating their books. Yeah. And yeah, I don't know if that's the best approach. Someone's probably figured it out for, <laughs> for a good way. I don't know. We won't get into that, but, but like it's, there's probably more resources, more assets, more tools to be able to, to create your story and actually get that out now than ever. So is that going to saturate the market? Is it going to make it more, more important to actually get your real story, like the good, the true, you know, vulnerable story out now so that you don't blend in with the noise? Like, I guess, how are you viewing the future of, well, so many people are willing to do it, Chris, because it's hard, right? It's hard. It takes you several months and it takes you, and there's a lot of nights where you got to sit there and look at a blank note. The myth about writers like me is that we like it. We don't like it. I don't like it. I just have no other way of making a living. <laughs> I, don't, I look at the keyboard the same way, man. I will do anything not to write, any excuse. And every writer I know knows the same way because if you do it well, it's hard. There's like 75 verbs for something, but only one perfect one, right? There's so many great ways of describing something, but only one optimum one. And the problem with it is once you get better at it, you realize you can't cheat them anymore. You have to still keep on trying to get better as in creative writing with you. And so that part's really challenging. But the, the big thing that's happened all my, my clients put their books on Amazon. Amazon's brilliant because it's the world's biggest bookstore, A, 
B, it's really handy and available. And C, you don't have to pay the printing costs. There are no, when people say to me, I want to get my book in an airport, I'm t- I tell them the same, I, I don't think it's going to happen. There are fewer and fewer publishers with shorter and shorter lists. So it's really, really the creme de la creme de la creme de la creme. And, and, and those, I don't, I'm not going to write a book that's going to end up in the airport. I've had it happen, but it's, it's, I'm not, it's not going to happen to me. And so it's not going to happen to you either. But the great thing is the gatekeepers are gone. And so you can have all the benefits of that book because remember of the hundred people that look at their book or think better of you for having a book, only one read it. If that, that's probably your mom. So it's so powerful, but because the gatekeepers are gone, because Amazon and a lot of companies like them exist, it's never been easier to do. So with someone like me, um, so this is my service. We drill down, we find those three things. And, and, we, and if you were my client, Chris, you'd be so sick of me because I am just, you're, you're, we're going to get there and it, you're going to be going, why are you asking me these questions? <laughs> because uh, why do you care what my mother did for a living? But we're going to get there. We're going to figure it all out. And, and it's, a, it's a bit of a, it's a process. You have to trust the process and the person that's administering the process. But that means that there, because there are no gatekeepers and because there's people like me doing it, it's very, very possible to do. And so what we do is we find that story and then it, depending whether you want me to write it or ghost write it or what I prefer to do is help the person write it. And we have a brilliant coach that gets you there, or a brilliant staff of editors that can, that can bring your work to a sheen. So, you know, we can get you that book if you, if you want to work on it and help it. We can get you that book for like 10K in the can up on Amazon. Or if you want to shop it around and use Fiverr or something like that, or you know someone who's an editor, you can get a better price, all to the good. But like that's a substantial investment, but that's not a prohibitive investment, I don't think. No. No. And so not it's, to, it's not to it, capture everything, right? No, you're no, you're capturing no. your entire life. I know. And you can spin a second book out of that because there's, we've probably turned over enough stones. And, and you've got that story that you're going to tell every day. And the thing about that story is it's your fingerprint. Someone can steal the same insurance that you're selling. Someone can move into your territory, you know, no matter what it is you do. No one can replicate the fingerprint that is your story and your life because you're the only person who's had that life, right? And so it's super, super powerful. And then, of course, it's the pivot for it's the pivot point for all your social media. So instead of going, what am I going to what am I going to post today? Here's what you're going to post, dude. You have you have the fundamental story, and you have so that's the hub of the wheel. And then you have 50 spokes coming up, just different ways of looking at it. You never have to figure out your social media again because this is your social media. And if you're at a if you're at a BNI event and you have to give uh, you know a, uh, an elevator speech, you have it because that's it. It's three sentences. And so it has such utility. If you have a podcast like you, it determines what kind of podcast it is. It, it can even determine the art and the texture of it, how it looks. It certainly would determine the cover of it, the name of it. So it's so really important and much more possible now than ever. So when you ask how it's changing, it's all changing to the good. It's, it's, it's more available now than ever. And, it, and as you say, as more people write their books and stuff like that, it becomes more important just to kind of stay abreast. But it's almost never you're going to have someone in competition in your in your region 
in your market, in your category that's written a book, they don't do it because it's hard and they don't think they're permitted. <laughs> and and uh, it's a lot of work. And that's why they don't do it. There you go. Uh, all right, Mike, this has been great. We're going to jump into the last three questions here. Uh, questions. The answer to your question is Bismarck, North Dakota. I don't, don't know which direction you're going with that one. Oh, well, one of these times it's going to be right. Yeah, eventually you'll get it. Uh, so, you have written a lot of books, and so I don't want you to use one yeah. of your own, but what book would you recommend okay. everyone read? Oh, that's easy. I think the best business book, I, I, can I give you two? I'll allow it. Oh, you're very kind. How <laughs> to Win Friends and Influence People because it's story-based. It's a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant book. Written in 1934, sold 30 million copies. And the E-Myth. The E-Myth is about the entrepreneurial myth. It's about how I have a friend who's a mechanic. And he said, my business changed when I stopped sticking my head underneath the hoods of cars. And so it's about how to run a small business as a business. And it's, I think it's a terrific book. Awesome. Uh, what is next for you professionally? Oh, I, I just hope to do more of this. I just love the idea of talking to people and helping them figure this stuff out. That would be ideal. I, so obviously, uh, when you look at me, you know I'm not a kid. And so I've had this extraordinarily fortunate career. And really, there isn't, if I sell, if I write 20 books or 25 books, it's not going to make any difference. But if I help you figure out your story and use that, and that becomes something you can use in your utility for the rest of your career, we're there. So that's, that's what I want to do. That's what I want to take my business. I want to help as many people as I can figure it out. Uh, and then the last question, where can people find you? Sure, it's Bismarck. <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> Capital North Dakota. People can find me on my website, mikealmer.com. Or they can look me up on uh, on you on uh, LinkedIn, and uh, either one of those should should work fine. Awesome! All right, Mike. Thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me, Chris. I had a riot. Thank you. If you enjoyed today's episode, I would love a rating and review on your favorite podcast player. And for more information on how to build effective and efficient teams through your leadership, visit leadingforeffect.com. As always deserve it.